thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and thanks for joining us back on The Real Food Real. Today we are joined by Jessica Cox who is an accredited practicing nutritional practitioner with a Bachelor of Health Science and has just under 10 years of clinical experience. Jessica joins us today to discuss all things gut health and food intolerances. Hi Jess and welcome to the show. Hi Steph, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited about this topic. But before we do dive in, you haven't been on the show before, so I want you to share a little bit about your background um, and what you're up to with your career today. For sure, for sure. So I've been a nutritionist for a decade now, so 10 years, which has gone really quickly. Um, I have a Bachelor of Health Science in Nutrition. Um, I went through... Um, the College of Natural Medicine, which is now Endeavour. And basically over the past 10 years, it's been a really, really exciting journey. I pretty much went straight into practicing by myself, um, working. I started for a couple of years just working in a clinic that was attached to a health food store, which was a fantastic platform to start on. Um, I then had, I moved from there and had about maybe a year, year and a half working in a practice that was someone else's practice which was, again, really fantastic. That gave me an idea of what I wanted to do more and it's always nice to work with someone else to see how they do things and what you'd like to do. And then I reached a point where I wanted to just expand out on my own again and um, left all of that, left also, I guess, a lot of um, my clientele and made the move into Brisbane, into the city, which was kind of scary but really, really rewarding at the same time. and moved into the city probably about six or so years ago and have been building my own practice here. Um, in the last, I was working in a multi-modality situation again but under my own banner and in the last two to three years I've moved into my own clinic which is the JCN Clinic um, and there's myself and Carissa, another nutritionist here and we, we see all sorts of health conditions but we definitely have built a name and a reputation on um, primarily gut health and food intolerances um, and helping people with that side of um, the spectrum of issues. Yeah, fantastic. And I really do want to talk about food intolerances today. Um, Obviously a really, really huge area. But do you think it was the prevalence that led you to choose to specialise in food intolerances or was it something else? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I, I think that's a huge part. I think that it's become just so common. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, it was, as a lot of people will say in natural medicine, I guess, um, there's your own journey as well. So there were certainly some of my own intolerances that I had that created that extra spark of interest. So I think that combined with just that increased um, sensitivity that seems to be happening 
within particularly, well, it seems to be more so within the Western world and looking at the whys of all of that, um, I found super fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. So, yeah, a bit of a combination of personal journey and obviously what you're seeing in clinic day to day. Yeah, for sure. And also obviously seeing um, that, that constant connection, of course, from how gut health will flow through and affect all facets of conditions um, and looking at the complexities of the why. So I've always been so big on treating the core of an issue and, you know, there's treating gut health, which is so important in so many conditions and issues. But for me, it's always been about, well, why, you know, why, why is the gut not working as effectively as we want it to, to work? You know, is there what sort of factors are going on? And that's where food intolerances, I think, started to become more and more of an interesting journey. Yeah, okay. So you think that you saw a prevalence of the development of food intolerances because of the challenges that we're seeing with gut health across the board? Um, yes, definitely. I think, I mean, if you're talking about the, yeah, the prevalence and the, the numbers of food intolerances that seem to be growing. I think that's very interconnected with Mm. gut health issues. Um, But obviously that alone there is multifactorial. It's then it's looking at, okay, well, why is that happening so much? What's, why is the gut becoming so sensitive? What are we doing um, as a culture that's creating such a reactive environment within our digestive system, you know, from a birth situation right through to what sort of, triggers and what sort of exposures um our gut immunity can come under um so i find that super fascinating from just an environmental point of view and then what we actually choose to put in our bodies from a food point of view too yeah could you give us a couple of specific examples to set the scene as to why we're having this challenge with gut health which does sort of seem like all of a sudden i mean Mm. there are other factors involved in terms of you know the evolution of science and, and the availability of testing and so on. But mm-hmm. do you think there's been a definite increase though, that aside? Yeah, yeah, I really do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you always have to wonder about how we are now and how much more availability of, as you say, of testing and just with things like the internet and access to information, mm-hmm. how much more it's just the fact that we know more now than say even 50, 60 years ago where there was certain perhaps conditions that were happening and people just didn't understand what they were. So I do find that a little curious, but I think without question there's been an increase. And I I think if you can, you know, it's so hard to narrow down, but I think there's all saying there's an environmental aspect. So there's um, what we're putting into our, our body in regards to increased exposure to toxicity in our environment. I think you can't downplay the effect of antibiotics and the huge effect that's had on our gut environment. So I guess that overuse of antibiotics has happened, which the medical world's now starting to be more aware of, but I think that's had a big implication. Mm. Um, I think stress is massive. Um, I think the way we live our lives now is becoming more and more intense um, in regards to that stress effect on the gut. Um, So there's also right back to even, I guess, from a a birth situation and what's happening there, whether people are, having births where perhaps they're not getting that exposure to the the bacteria as much or even through dietary exposure from the mother um, and how that's affecting the baby as it's developing. I think that has to be considered. And um, 
then I think you can't downplay the food that's coming into our body. So now the food that we're tending to ingest is more processed. Um, obviously, there's a higher sugar concentration a lot of the time. Um, oils are, are more refined. So we're not getting that really uh, great nourishment, I think, that maybe we're getting again, 50, 60 years ago that might have been just your simple meat and three veg meals. So I think between that combination of the food becoming more processed and us eating on the go and more stress and antibiotics and alcohol and these sorts of factors, you put that all together and it becomes a, a really strong mixing pot for a environment where the immune system within the gut becomes a lot more sensitive. Yeah, for sure. That's a great summary. Obviously, lots of areas that I think anyone listening can relate to. We've all had exposure to more than one of those um, scenarios. So fascinating as to where things are trending. But so within food intolerance testing then, how do you decide that someone needs testing or is it something that you screen all your clients for? Mm -hmm. We tend to, we definitely take people on a case-by-case basis. So with anyone that comes through the door, um, we'll go through their symptoms and so forth and then with them look at whether we need to delve into testing. Um, the thing with the testing is that it's not cheap to get done. So to be honest, if we were able to get the testing done for every client, we probably would yeah. if it was free because it's such a, a great tool between that and every, and also the comprehensive stool analysis testing. For us, that's the both of those together are just like a window into the gut which just gives us everything that we need. Um, so because of the fact that it's not a, a cheap test to get done, we'll tend to, with a client, look at their situation and their case um, and then perhaps we might feel there's quite a few really common red flags to us that we might put into place over a three- to four-week period, an elimination type of diet. Um, if we feel that they're able to follow that. Um, however, often we will talk to the client about testing straight up and because of their lifestyle, um, they just feel like doing an elimination diet isn't practical. So we may dive straight into testing. Um, conversely, with someone who may have followed for three to four weeks an elimination diet and we're not seeing the results that we're after, we'll definitely talk then about testing because for us it, it just – it's about getting more information quicker instead of them trying this and then trying that and the cost of that all adding up. We're like, let's just get these tests and see where we're standing so we can get in and treat this more effectively. So, yeah, it definitely is a case-by-case -case basis and it certainly comes down to what we think is appropriate as a practitioner but also what works for the client because everyone's different in how they want to approach it. Yeah, I totally agree. And obviously everyone's coming to you at a different stage in their journey with the with the amount of information that there is on the internet. A lot of people have probably done some version of an elimination diet and so, mm -hmm. you know, they're absolutely ready to have the testing done. And I mean, I'm That's with it. you. I think you, you test, um, you don't guess, right? But yes. obviously there is that, that cost factor. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if you have a client that's coming in to see you that's eating a standard Australian diet, then there's a lot of amazing changes that you can make first. That's right, exactly. And that's where we like to use those first three to four weeks maximum to do that. So that's yeah. where it depends on the client. So if you've got someone that comes in and they're 
following, as you say, just a standard Australian diet and there's some really common reactivities and some really big, as I say, red flags. You're like, okay, well, we'd be crazy not to do this first given what you've just told me, then you want you want to go down that track for them because it could be really simplistic for you as a practitioner. But if you're getting that person that's walking in the door and they've done certain amount of elimination diets, they already pull themselves off the most common foods, they've tried quite a few different things and they're coming into you, you're just like, well, let's, yeah, let's get that information. And to be honest, a lot of our clients know that we do a lot of testing. So we will get referrals where people just come in the door and they're like, I'm here to do the testing. Yeah. So we'll walk them through and look at what's the most appropriate testing to do because the food intolerance testing is awesome, but it's, again, it's not the only answer. Yeah, you have to consider what's going on with the gut too. Yeah, absolutely. So let's break down those two scenarios then. If it was a client that is following a standard Australian diet, what would you make as the, say, the top three changes in that first three or four weeks? Um, so what we would tend to do, I'm trying to think of how I can break this down into simple three things because it differs so much yeah, from person no, to person. Yeah. But I guess number one would be just overall make sure they're getting enough generalized um, whole food and nourishment and, and macronutrient balance throughout their day so that we know just overall they they've got good food going into their body mm-hmm. um, which sounds really simplistic but if someone's just not eating well in general then obviously that can lead to digestive array and um discomfort well i just so I that, to interrupt you there it, it, you, it sounds simplistic to you and i but mm. this is the scenario that i always run through my head if i say to someone oh, all you need to do is stop eating the refined carbohydrates mm-hmm and they're eating 80% refined carbohydrates, then it's not simple. You know, that's an exactly. absolutely huge step. So you wouldn't, I wouldn't say that to somebody that's eating a standard Australian diet, which is so refined. Yeah, that's it. And you're <laughs> right, it does. It sounds really simple to us, yeah. but that can be all that needs to be changed. Or it could be something as simple as water, which I always say to clients, look, I know this sounds so simple, but if you're not drinking enough water, if you're having like two glasses of water a day, there's going to be issues here. So it can be those sorts of fundamentals that just need to be looked at first and that alone can can cause a really big um, positive shift. So that would be a number one. Um, number two would be common triggers like gluten um, or wheat, differentiating between the two of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and dairy would be the other one that we see a lot of reactivity to and of course we see a bias selection of the community because they're coming with a lot of reactivity already but definitely gluten and dairy um, and potentially eggs as well um, something we see a lot of reactivity to so over that three to four week time period we may put them on a gfdf um, dietary protocol and maybe consider pulling eggs out as well Um, with that we are so um, careful that we send them away with a really thorough food plan. So it will be balanced, it'll be nutritious, and it'll have lots of options. And primarily, of course, it'll be free of whatever we need them to avoid. So it's super important that people walk out our doors and they're like, okay, I've got to stuff these foods, but this is really achievable because I've got it all written out in front of me. I know what to buy at the supermarket and, you know, this, this won't be that hard. Yeah, amazing. 
And what if it was someone that was coming to see you who had been following a paleo template? Could you give me like three changes that you think and eggs can be involved? Because I think they will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if it was on that um, plane as far as paleo, um, again, we'd probably, we'd always look at them in regards to their lifestyle. So we do get people coming to us on paleo type diets and they may be suffering with a lot of um, fatigue and energy issues and sugar cravings. So we often find that introducing the right type of carbohydrate back into their diet for them can be a number one step. So they might have gone quite extreme and cut out any sort of carb um, and it might be as simple as introducing a little bit more, whether it's some buckwheat or quinoa or a little bit of brown rice back into their diet um, can honestly be amazing sometimes. So there'd be that aspect. Um, From an intolerance point of view though, um, yeah, we might, if we're thinking that there's things like gluten or dairy or eggs, we may still look at pulling those out, but we'd have to look at the alternative proteins again. So um, whether it was over those three weeks utilising a little bit more meat or seafood protein or some really good quality um, protein powders without any sort of nasties and such in them, we might have to utilise that. Yeah, great. So obviously very individualised, but there is a lot that you can do um, in at least – Coming back to basics, I think, is often overlooked. I'm sure you agree. Mm. We're all a little bit quick fix orientated in this society and then, you know, it's it's not as sexy to be told to drink water <laughs> or maybe even control your stress, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so true. It's so, yeah. so true. Yeah. yeah so I always it, find that really, um, yeah, it, I find it really interesting when you, you do go through and, and just go through as we say, the basics with someone and get those fundamentals right and it makes such a profound difference for people. I just think that's really exciting yeah, and it does get overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what about FODMAPs? What do you see there as a prevalence and those really big trigger foods? Yeah, definitely seeing more of that. And, again, I don't know whether that's becomes because there is now more of an awareness. Mm. So we'll get clients coming in whether they've been to their doctor Um, or they've been on the internet and they're like, okay, I'm going to try a low FODMAP diet. So they tend to come in more already following it than we are the ones putting them onto that type of diet. Um, We do utilise it at points. We probably tend to utilise it more after we've done um, the comprehensive stool analysis testing um, and we know what sort of potential bacteria or yeasts that we're working with because we tend to find that it works better in those scenarios. But for us, look, the FODMAP diet, and I think I've heard you talk about this with an, um, someone else that you were interviewing quite recently, so I can't recall his name. Um, yes, we had I, Jad Patrick on the show, yeah, so I will course, actually link yes. up that episode because you and I just dived in to chat about FODMAPs. Not everyone might know what it is, and we'll obviously keep breaking it down for our listeners that aren't across it, but we have an entire episode on the topic that we can link to in the show notes as well. Yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's it's got its place, um, but I do think that it's a diet that is more about symptom control. Um, I think what we're doing is we're taking away really strongly fermentable carbohydrates that are quite problematic for an upset gut. So if there's you know a microbiome issue, 
then putting in these fermentable carbohydrates is going to cause more distress. Mm. So, of course, if you take those away from someone, they're going to feel better. But I would, I would sort of question or argue, is it really that they're reactive to those foods? No. Or are they intolerant to them? Not so much. It's just controlling their symptoms. So, yes, it's a good short-term um, diet to follow while you're rectifying the underlying causes but whether it's a diet to use long term um, I think for majority of circumstances I would say no Um, of course there's like actual you know fructose intolerance and those sorts of conditions that do occur but I think the overall low FODMAP diet is more about controlling symptoms. Yeah interestingly because we see people that have these significant numbers of food intolerances, whereas like I like to think that hopefully it's impossible that they're intolerant to that many foods. It's just yeah. they've got the underlying gut issue. Definitely. And I think then, that's really important. Yeah, because then as we touched on before, it becomes really restrictive. And a lot of people, I'm not sure if you have this experience, Jess, but a client that might have been exposed to FODMAPs before they've seen me, get handed a list and it's this massive list and it's literally like here's a list of foods that you can't eat. Mm-hmm. And for the majority of people that is so overwhelming and mm-hmm. it's also, you know, a very negative treatment approach rather than it being like, okay, well, this is what you can eat, right? So agree, and, yeah. And then it's restrictive and they end up eating the same thing and then they get more intolerances and we go round and round and round in circles. <laughs> so true. Yeah, yeah. Again, because it's not the, the core of the issue hasn't been dealt with and unfortunately, as you say, they are given these lists and told don't eat this. And again, it's yeah, it's a low FODMAP diet, right? Like no, not a no FODMAP mm. diet. So, yeah, it's another um, thing. Mm. They're on these super, super restrictive diets which are creating more problems um, as a result. And it's ironic, you know, we work with food intolerances so strongly but we probably – um, with a lot of clients to encourage them to have more food diversity because we do get people coming in on these very restricted diets already and we're like, okay, right, we need to trial this and we need to bring this back in and there can be a lot of fear with that, of course, but, um, yeah, the, the danger with, with food intolerances overall is these very, very restrictive diets. Yeah, absolutely. I think food variety is one of the most important things back on the egg um, topic that you mentioned mm-hmm. that, suddenly someone's eating eggs for breakfast every day and they wonder why they're getting symptoms. You know, we've got to get good at having some variety within our meal plan. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, which I love helping people with too because at the core I'm a massive foodie. So (laughs) if I can get people excited about a variety and flavours and different things to try, I'm like, yes, I've succeeded. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, everyone must go and check out Jess's Instagram account. It's divine and it will make you very hungry so be warned (laughs) cool let's move on to testing because i do want to talk about your food intolerance testing and then the stool testing so what do you do from a food intolerance point of view jess yeah so the main type of testing we do is uh igg uh testing and iga so we use um a lab that uses the Alyssa method which we find um has the most research and backing behind it. I've put a lot of my time, particularly more in the early years, into making sure the labs that we're using, the type of testing we're using were the best that were out there and I have a lot of faith in um, the Alyssa method. And I guess over the years too, 
because of using it so much and, and seeing the positive outcomes that sort of cemented that for me. So um, we tend to utilize the Alyssa method through and the IgG, IgA testing through either a blood draw situation where someone will go to a laboratory and have bloods taken or we might use a blood spot method where they're um, collecting some um, blood spots at home on some little um, cards as such. And that allows us to look at, those are sent off to the lab, but it allows us to look at if there's um, an increased reactivity on an IgG pathway. So basically we're looking at your antibody responses um, or sorry, your immunoglobulin responses. If I get that around the right way. So we're looking at whether there's a heightened IgG response, which is generally the most common pathway that food reactivity tends to happen on, um, but we're also seeing there's a little bit of a push with the IgA pathway too. So we like to try and test both if we can, but again, that'll come down to the client affordability um, and also their types of symptoms and how chronic they are. Mm. Um, so they, they're really fantastic. And of course, they're more looking at food intolerances. They're not um, looking at allergies. Occasionally, we might order a test that is an IgE-based reactivity, which is definitely more of your allergy pathway. But we find that majority of clients that we see, if they've got an allergy, it tends to be, they know about it. It's very, you know, you have an allergy food, you get a reaction very quickly. Um, you tend to know that A equals B. Um, however, with food intolerances, the problem is there's that delayed um, reaction. So, you maybe you could be getting a reaction straight away, but it could be anywhere up to sort of 48, 72 hours later. It can take quite a time before you're seeing a reaction. So they're a little bit more insidious in their nature, a little bit harder to differentiate, you know, why A is equaling B. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So blood test or blood spot off the lab, then back to mm -hmm. you. And then yep. obviously you've got a list of foods where um, an intolerance is present. Yeah, so the, um, the bloods get sent to the lab. It'll take about a three-week time frame. Once that comes back to us at the clinic, it'll come back with a list of foods. Now, majority of the time we're testing for around 90 foods, so it's quite comprehensive. Um, and the good thing about these tests is it gives us an idea of a low through to a high reactivity. So it's not just saying positive or negative. Mm. So we really can see, okay, what's on a low reaction here? What's medium? What's high? Um, we tend to call those high foods the core driver foods. So um, usually there's a really big focus more so on those really high foods coming out of the diet to start with. Um, the really important thing for us with these test results when they come back is looking at them in regards to everything else going on with a client and their gut health because you may get a test that comes back and it is so reactive. Yeah. It can it can be a crazy amount of reactivity and as you were saying before like no it, it, no one's reactive to food that much in regards to like having that many food intolerances long term. It's it's a huge sign straight up that there's something not right with the gut. Something's not functioning correctly. Yeah. As far as a, as a reactivity immune issues so once we get those sort of test results we have to start looking deeper um others i would say the majority of the results though that do come back tend to be more of your standard where we might have 
anywhere from maybe two, maybe four um, common foods that might be on there um, as far as high reactants. Or we might have two or three um, medium or low reactants, which might be a little bit more sort of random, which are usually the immune system starting to get a little bit reactive in general. So it might be some other foods that they're eating quite a lot of. So they're really great in that they do tell us whether, yeah, there's that low, medium or high access. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then obviously what's the next step? (laughs) So the next step from there is we will devise for the client a food plan um, and that is usually done over a 12-week period. So we'd work with them over the 12 weeks with that food plan and anything that is a high reactant um, we tend to pull out of the diet Um, anything that's sort of medium we'll try and get them away from too and anything that's a low reactant we'll suggest maybe once or twice a week at a maximum um, over that time frame Um, so we'll we'll include that within the dietary plan we'll give them um, say three to four ideas for breakfast lunch dinner snacks so they've got a lot of variety and over that 12 weeks we'll also work with them in regards to building their gut health reducing that um, heightened immune reaction. So by the time we get to the end of the 12 weeks, we can actually look at reintroducing, which is so important. Um, And a lot of our clients, when we get to that point, because they're feeling really, really great, don't want to (laughs) budge. They're Mm. in this little bubble where they're happy and it's all working and we're starting to talk to them about, okay, we want you to try some goat or some sheep milk cheeses or we want you to try some egg Um, and we will do that in a very systematic way so we'll ask them to reintroduce say eggs over three days and include that enough that we can see over three days if there's going to be a reaction Um, so we will slowly work our way through the low reactive foods maybe a few of the medium reactive foods high reactance depends it really depends um on the person and whether we go back to those foods. Often maybe those one or two foods might end up staying out of the diet and they might find that, you know, once every two, three weeks if they go out for a a dinner or breakfast and they decide to have, say, something that's got a bit of cow's milk in it, um, then they just do. Um, They might feel a bit crap the next day. I say to them it's kind of like starting to have too many drinks. (laughs) Um, And then you just sort of get back onto things in the days to follow. So, yeah, it's super important that we do that reintroduction um, once we get to that end of that 12 weeks. Um, so that would be a very generalized way we would go about it. That 12-week period could be less depending on how many food reactants were on the test and it could be longer, particularly if we're seeing someone with a lot going on. So we'd be working with them obviously a lot um, more in regards to that gut health aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea, though. Obviously, you can guide them over that 12-week journey because, as you say, they're going to have this fear of certain foods now that they realize what's been causing all their challenges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's really important that we get them to come in once every three weeks. Usually, I get them back within a fortnight, actually, after they've seen their results and and gotten started. Call it their teething period. Mm. It's, um, It's literally like pulling 
you know, the rug out from someone, you've completely turned their life upside down. So it's super important that you get them back in a couple of weeks and just say, okay, how are you going? Where's your problem areas? But over the time frame, it's, it's important for us to touch base with them and go through their food and look at what they're eating and not only make sure, okay, are you cutting out the foods that are causing you an issue and is there any problems there, but is this still balanced? Like are you you might be cutting out all these foods, but you actually might be not eating very well in general. So we want to keep track of that and make sure that's all working effectively too. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, but then giving them back to a place where they've obviously got that underlying gut health now, so mm-hmm. they're not reacting to those foods like they once were. That's right, exactly, which is really exciting. And I've seen so many varied cases with that over the years where some people have been able to go back to pretty much everything, um, others that can't, others that seem to be really quite sensitive um, and struggle going back to foods. Um, and I always find that fascinating, the difference between people. I find kids are really good at being able to go back to foods, um, which is interesting given the fact that they're a little bit more of a blank canvas, they haven't done as much damage to their system. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Very good. All right. Did you want to t- uh, add anything there to the food intolerance testing or should we move on to the stool testing? Um, no, we can move on to the stool testing. I don't think there was anything else for the food intolerance testing specifically. Good. All righty. So we've covered that. So then obviously another um, bow of yours is using the stool testing to help with the diagnosis. Take mm-hmm. us through how that works and then maybe some common um, scenarios from the results Mm-hmm. So the CSAL, or Comprehensive Stool Analysis Testing, um, it's a three-day stool collection test. Um, it's done in the comfort of your own home, so that's always um, a bonus. <laughs> um, it's not nice for people to do, but it's a fantastic way of us looking and testing for bacterial overgrowth, parasites, yeasts, um, and we can also, depending on the type of tests we do look for um, inflammatory markers we can look for um, uh, if there's a prevalence of like um, byproducts within the stool like whether there's vegetable or muscle fibers or so forth just to see whether everything's being broken down effectively we can assess beneficial bacteria and look at numbers of your lactobacillus and bifido and so forth short chain fatty acids so um it's, it's pretty amazing in what can be assessed. Once that stool sample is collected, all the three are collected, they're sent off to the lab and, again, it takes about three or four weeks for results to come back to us here at the clinic um, and it will come back in a really great um, profile as such that will let us know what we're dealing with. So, again, outlining whether there's a type of bacteria, one, two, three or so that might be quite strongly overgrown, if there's um, yeast happening as well. Um, And it's really, really fantastic for us to have that information to know more specifically how to treat a client. Um, If someone's coming in and you know that there's gut issues and you're suspecting that there may be, say, some dysbiosis, so that imbalance of bacteria or yeasts we can treat that on a sort of broad spectrum level but when we know exactly what we're dealing with we know particularly the type of bacteria or the type of yeast it's so much more effective for us because we can use particular types of antimicrobials we know um, whether we need to use certain types of dietary protocols as well 
Um, so it's a, I, I love it. Again, if I could get everyone to do that test that walked in the door, I think I'd actually choose that test over food intolerance testing. Yeah. I just think it's amazing. Um, I know it's not telling us anything about um, the small intestines as far as the whole SIBO picture goes, but um, it's still a huge, huge aspect that's important to, to find out as much as you can about. Well, even even the SIBO, I think you can get a lot of information from the stool test to at least point you in the direction if there there is mm. going to be a, um, a need to do some SIBO testing. So yeah. it can almost be that pathway to if there is anything further required. Yeah, I agree. I so agree. And it, and also depending on how uh, a client may respond. So if you do a CSA test and depending on what you see or how they respond to treatment or perhaps don't respond, um, yeah, it can be a really good um, way of going, okay, we need to, to look at this a little further. Yeah, absolutely. So why do you do the three-day test? Yeah, good question. Um, it's, it's just more comprehensive. So it's really, um, it's really quite easy to potentially miss something in one stool. Um, and we do see that with, say, a client who might come in and they've already had a stool test with their GP and they've just done one test. Um, and that sample um, has been collected and looked at by a lab. And look, it may not, be, it may not have been looked at as comprehensively as the labs that we use. Um, but a lot of the time there'll be, say it's been a, um, a, a bacterial, um, test that they've run and it's all come back with, you know, nothing there. And then we do a three day, um, collection and we see that that's just not the case. There is actually, um, a certain bacterial strain that is prevalent and causing a lot of issues. And I find that particularly fascinating when there's part of the sample where it breaks down stool one, stool two, and stool three. And you may see that in stool one, um, they've picked up a parasite, but it's not there in two or three. So you can literally see how you could miss this if you weren't doing the three. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you if this was something that you had seen in your testing of late. The gut health conversation is obviously huge and nearly every second person's at least doing something from a probiotic or gut health standpoint. But do you then still see people with results of like zero lactobacillus and zero bifido? Yeah, I do. Mm, I do, too. I do, definitely, which I find fascinating. But mm. I think that that's because of the imbalance within the gut microbiome. So obviously, you know, you get someone, they come into you for the past six months, they've been taking a probiotic and it's got a couple of strains of lactobacillus in it. So, you, you know, there's the assumption that that's going to be fine. You get the results and there's none. There's none at all. But if there's an overgrowth of other bacteria and there's an overgrowth of some opportunistic yeast happening, then suddenly we've got an environment where the pH isn't a viable environment for the growth of the lactobacillus or the bifido. So it doesn't matter how much you're trying to feed into the body with a probiotic if the environment's not there for that to to grow um, and thrive, then it's it's like, you know, it, it's like you may as well be pouring the probiotics down the sink. They're not really doing the job for you. And I think that's where it's so important to look at how you treat the gut in that aspect. And once you have these sorts of results, um, you know, you get, a, you get a result back and there's no growth of lactobacillus. I don't think the first thing to do 
is to start trying to throw lactobacillus into the gut. <laughs> you need to look at, okay, why? Let's do some stuff first so we can create an environment where then when we put in some strains of lactobacillus, we're going to get some adhesion and some growth. Yeah, I totally agree, particularly because, you know, I think the testing for a lot of people, it can be quite shocking. There's yeah. this kind of assumption that you're doing your sauerkrauts or your yeah. bone broth that you must have good gut health and I think yeah. you can easily walk around with that assumption until you get this information and unfortunately because of that internal environment, mm-hmm. all the effort that you're putting in is essentially going to waste. So true, yeah. Mm. And I think, you know, the, it sort of brings me back to what you were asking originally about the why this is so much more prevalent. I think the other thing is how much travel we do now, um, particularly I think what, you know, sort of finishing high school and heading off to places like Bali and Thailand and Cambodia and so forth, um, which I know I did, and the increased exposure in regards to gastroenteritis. And then having these um, gut infections or bacterial exposures um, and never really doing anything about it um, earlier on in our life. And then coming to this time, maybe five years, six years later where there's these symptoms that are becoming more and more prevalent and more and more um, concerning to live with and you feel like you're doing all of the right things with your gut and with your diet and so forth and, you you know, you run these tests and it's quite shocking. (laughs) It's like, oh, my God. Um, But often it's because um, there has been these these bacterial issues earlier on in the the course of your life. and I find that really fascinating because I think we have this notion and it look sometimes of course the body is going to clean that up finally on its own but I think we do have a notion oh, I don't have any symptoms anymore I've had my my bout of gastro for a week and it settled down on its own I took my gastro stop and bam it's fine but often yeah that's not quite the case yeah absolutely because of the underlying damage that's been caused yeah yeah for sure and that's what I think can come up and you can see with the um, the testing, which yeah. I find fascinating. Yeah, me too. So you mentioned the antimicrobial therapy. Mm-hmm. How do you then use that from a treatment perspective? So with the testing, um, what I love about the lab that we use is once you get a, um, a reaction, particularly when it's quite high, they will take that bacteria um, for, let's say, a bacteria or a yeast. So, so let's say Klebsiella comes back as really um, like as dysbiotic, so it's like really, really strongly overgrown. They will take that and they will measure that as such against some antimicrobials um, and then literally give you um, a panel telling you, okay, we've measured this um, for this person against um, some berberine, some oregano, some undersalinic acid, some, some grapefruit seed, um, and this is what it's tested best for. So we'll, it will actually tell us this um, particular antimicrobial is a lot more um, sensitive for using against the Klebsiella, um, whereas these other three aren't really going to do much for you. And that's probably one of the things as a practitioner I love about these tests because I can – go out and pull off my shelf a broad-spectrum antimicrobial that's got three or four different things in it and think, yeah, that should be a bit of antibacterial, a bit of antifungal, a bit of antiparasitic, feel like you're covering it. But you might do this test and then re-look at that antimicrobial and go, hmm, (laughs) that wasn't really doing much. Whereas 
you know, once you have that information, you can look at that and go, okay, I need to use this, this, and this, and suddenly you're getting the results that you're after. So I feel like that's a, a, where this test really can come into its own. Yeah. Um, and there's probably certain types of antimicrobials that we tend to use more of. Um, but again, that will vary from person to person. So we tend to stock a lot of variety of antimicrobials for that reason. And we tend to try and get, um, I guess, supplements where they may be just a, a one type of um, antimicrobial as opposed to always being broad spectrum. Because Sometimes we find that can work a little bit better when we know what we're dealing with. Yeah, okay. So you find which which herb or which product is the most sensitive to mm, what's it. what the problem is and use that for your treatment. We might use that or we might we definitely will rotate a lot too. We like to sort of make sure we're constantly changing up our antimicrobial treatment so it doesn't sort of come become kind of complacent. So mm. we might start with with one or two things um, that we know are are going to do the job. Um, and we might do that for say three weeks and then we might move and bring something else in or change something over but still keeping in mind what we've seen on the test results Um, because often between so if you've got someone come back and they've got maybe two dysbiotic bacteria species but then they've also got an overgrowth of a yeast like once you're looking at all of those there's quite a lot of things that you need to potentially use or you could use but we don't want to use all of that all at once because one it could make someone quite unwell trying to do all of that um and also just even a cost point of view. We don't we're really big on not making sure someone walks out the door with like ten supplements. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be the order that you start with? If there's a test where you've got the no lactobacillus, no bifido, and mm-hmm. then maybe you've got a parasite and say candida. Yeah. How do you preference that or prioritize, sorry? We would always well in the majority we'd still always start antimicrobial um, before visiting um, the lactobacillus and, and rebuilding. So we would go in from an antimicrobial um, sort of number one approach um, as far as we, we'd probably look at treating all of that together. Like we would look at something that's going to work for the bacteria, for the yeast overgrowth and the parasite. And we'd try and perhaps pick a couple of things that we feel will cover the three of those as much as possible. So, again, we're keeping it um, as easy for the client as possible. So it might be one or two antimicrobials that cover that whole axis. Mm. At the same time, the only thing we might also bring in um, is some Saccharomyces boulardii. We usually bring that in at the start as well um, just to to really help with getting everything moving along, um, particularly if we're seeing, if we've done a full comprehensive test and done all our um, inflammatory markers and so forth and we're seeing low secretory IgA or even high secretory IgA we know there's an issue there we'll often be using a bit of SB um, and we may depending on how um, inflamed the client is look at bringing in at the start a little bit of perhaps some glutamine a little bit of those maybe a little bit of slippery elm a little bit of that just general soothing um, activity at the same time and We'll probably apply that. Geez, it's, it's, it's really hard to say because people obviously change in regards to how quickly they respond and so forth, but at least a three to four week process of that. And then we'll sit down with them 
um, and look at where they are and how they're responding and whether we can start to consider bringing in some probiotics. Um, if we do that, we always ensure that, say, the antimicrobials will be taken more at the beginning of the day and then that we get people taking their probiotics at night before they go to sleep. Um, so we're getting that distance between the two. Um, but, the, yeah, the probiotics will definitely come in secondary once we feel like we've reduced the numbers um, of the adverse agents and such. Um, and as we're doing those probiotics, we'll start to increase more of um, not only the gut healing but that encouraging that um, detoxification a little bit, sort of looking at a little bit of the liver access and the kidneys and so forth. So sort of moving through and encouraging that sort of cleaning out process of the, the gut and the liver. Um, so, yeah, I sort of feel like it's a three-step process that we tend to do, but it can go anywhere from six to eight weeks, sometimes up to, a, you know, a good three months. I've had clients even six months, and I'm not saying they're on antiprobials for, oh, for six months all the time, but it can actually be quite a long process if it's quite strongly rooted. And alongside all of that with what you're doing, the, um, the supplementation is without question the food. So if you've got someone presenting with... Um, your bacterial overgrowth and a yeast overgrowth and a parasite, for instance, there's a high chance that you might need to put them on a a FODMAP type diet or a low fructooligosaccharide diet at least. Um, you're probably needing to really drop your sugar content down and we may look at in general bringing the starches down quite low um, and then at a point we would look at reintroducing those and often that can be a good sign as you reintroduce some of those foods um, it can tell you where that um, microbiome is at because if you're able to start reintroducing more fiber and starches and a little bit more natural sugars and you're not getting a response um, from the gut uh, you know a negative response and obviously that's a really good sign that um Things are, are moving in that, that really good positive direction. There's been the die-off that you're after, the, the microbiome's coming back into a better balance. So we, we tend to play with the food in that regard. And sometimes we may retest if we feel it's warranted, but usually the symptoms themselves um, are, are quite good for analysing and seeing where someone's at. Yeah, that was my next question. Do you need to retest? But <laughs> usually, yeah, you can you can definitely tell how things that's have changed. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And we do, yeah, occasionally we will retest with clients and they're usually the more difficult cases. Um, and it can be great because sometimes retesting six months down the track can really um, give a client some positive um, clarification that things are working well because, mm. you know, when something's so strongly rooted or it's so chronic and you're working along, you you know, as things are improving, if there's other things that still aren't quite right, as we tend to do as humans, focus on what's still not right. <laughs> so if you can see your first test and then you see your second test and you can see a huge reduction in overall um, bacteria and yeast and so forth and maybe your parasite's gone or whatever that may be, that can be really encouraging. Yes. Yeah, fascinating. I think also, you know, like you say, it does take, can take three months or six months. So at least with that retesting, it can be some feedback that the the effort and 
the you know the changes that the individual has put into practice are worthwhile Mm -hmm. definitely I think that can be really great Mm. um so yeah it can be really important to retest but in majority of cases we probably don't we Mm. just go off how they're feeling um, and as I say, that food reduction, that food reintroduction, which is obviously a really positive sign. If suddenly you're back to eating a really good whole food nourishing diet, and you feel like nothing's reacting, and you feel good, and you've got you know great vitality, and it's like, well, obviously we're ticking some good boxes here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And what about weight management with regards to the? stool testing and some of the um, results you might see, could, a, could a, I guess some feedback be that the individuals may be losing weight for the first time in a long time? Yeah, for sure, definitely. And I think that's multifactorial, of course, mm. because often dietary-wise you might be radically changing their diet. I mean, it's obviously going to be quite whole food-based, but particularly if you're pushing them to a diet that's lower in starch and quite low in sugars and so forth. Like, you know, there's still a lot of good veggies and fats and proteins there, but it's naturally pushing them into more of a a lower carbohydrate type diet, which can be a huge change for some clients. So that alone um, will, will have an effect. But second to that, of course, is that if you're suddenly working with a gut microbiome and you're creating an area that's less inflamed, there's less overall digestive congestion um, and so forth. That's going to be so advantageous to the metabolism. So you can have a client who's felt really sluggish and uncomfortable and bloated and they're not moving their bowels frequently and you know they're feeling like they're holding on to weight. You can imagine if you reduce that inflammation, you get their bowels moving more frequently um, and suddenly they're feeling more hungry as well so often those people don't even have much of an appetite you you know their whole metabolism is responding effectively so they often um, from a weight point of view see some really exciting changes Um, you know and those those clients often say they feel like they're holding a lot of weight around their midsection so I love that I love seeing people um, who've really struggled with the weight side get that extra kick Um, of course there's a flip side to that because a lot of the time you might get clients that come in having these issues and they're quite thin um, and losing weight, you have to be really, really careful. So you have to be mindful of what you're doing with like a low starch or, you know, a low sugar diet, um, mainly the starches to be honest, and maybe look at, okay, maybe we have to be a bit more lenient here and allow a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that because you don't want them to getting um, underweight on you. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I guess another reason why it's so individualized because you've got to be able to have that support so that you look at what the right approach is um, based on, you know, obviously the testing, but where the individual's starting from. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, fascinating. Such a huge area, but I'm really grateful that you shared your knowledge with us today. Can you please direct us to where our listeners can find more about you and certainly how they can get your support if they're looking for you um, as a practitioner? Yeah, for sure. So um, you can head to the website. Um, So it's just jessicacox.com.au. That will be more, there'll be all my information there for the JCN clinic itself. So there's a tab you can click on. You can find out about the clinic. Um, we obviously, we're located in Brisbane, but we offer national and international consultations. 
there's lots of info on there already on food intolerance testing, um, a lot of the questions people ask. So definitely head there. It's also a bit of a recipe resource. So um, I love it for being somewhere I can send clients to. Um, there's little tick boxes that you can select, whether it's GF, DF, um, you know, low, low FODMAP, etc. So there's some, some really good recipes that can be utilized. Um, other than that, definitely social media. So Instagram, um, which is Jess Cox Nutritionist, just with one S, um, Facebook, um, all the social media sites that are under my name as such. And again, they're just something that I use as a really, I guess, a, a food resource to get people excited about healthy eating. Yeah, amazing. And as I said before, gorgeous photos, very, very good looking food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love it love it love it amazing all right jess thanks so much for your time today it was great to chat with you and we'll speak yeah, again you soon thanks for having me okay bye this has been a production of the check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash the wellness couch subscribe to each show on itunes and check us out on twitter the wellness couch streaming wellness into your lives Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.